Hi, this is uh, Brett Hickey, founder and CEO of Star Mountain Capital. I'm excited to be here today with my partner and our chief risk officer, Dr. Lev Bordovsky. Uh, Lev, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Brett. Before we uh, get into the presentation here, uh, standard disclaimers, nothing in this presentation or discussion constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase interests in any investment product. Like to know more information, please reach out to StarMountainCapital.com, and we will be happy to discuss. Uh, today, we're going to talk about what's going on in the broad economy, starting with the virus, and what do we know today. Uh, at Star Mountain, we focus on data-driven insights into trying to think about and forecast and, and make the best decisions we can. So, our goal today is to share some of the information we currently have available and we want to give it a caveat that a lot of this is unfolding in real time. There's a lot of new information we're constantly gathering, observing, and reviewing. So please ensure that you keep that in mind as we share with you the best information that we have available to us today and that also uh, we have not been able to validate or verify all this information. So keep that in mind that we're sharing information sharing the source of that information uh, and some of our views on what we're observing and how we're thinking about the virus, and how we're thinking about the global economy, and then get a little bit deeper into our views on the U.S. economy in particular, as well as the uh, global lending market and some things to consider it of and thoughtful of as it pertains to the fixed income private credit investment markets. Star Mountain is a firm manage over a billion dollars. We are exclusively focused on investing in U.S. lower middle market. We have two primary ways that we invest into this market. Uh, one is by lending money to established private businesses to help them grow their companies through acquisitions and other growth. We also have a complementary strategy which is focused on providing early liquidity other investors who are invested in lower middle market funds and or lower middle market investments. Uh, those two strategies are what drives our business to focus on understanding macroeconomic changes uh, as well as what's going on with economy industries which we'll discuss in today. Myself, I've been investing in the lower middle market for over 15 years. I started covering 20 years ago at Barney, part of Citigroup Global Banking Group, been risk officer for nearly 20 years now, started his um, or started his career at Credit Suisse working with German Brian Credit Suisse's alternative business at the time, I was his risk officer there and left Chief Risk Officer of the GSO team, which was later acquired by Blackstone as their credit business and a strong credit investment firm. Lev also writes a piece for the Wall Street Journal that if you're familiar with, look at called the Daily Shot. Pulls the vast amount of information available globally. Uh, Lev uh, spends a lot of time 
breaking that down into very digestible charts and information that helps us think about our business and we think would be beneficial for so first off, Lev, let's talk about the virus. What do we know currently? Let's start with the most earliest, I should say, information, which is from China. Uh, what can we observe, Lev, in trends based on what we've seen so far in data? Thanks, Brad. So what we're seeing, um, and this, this seems to be the case both in China and South Korea, is um, rapid uh, pickup in the number of new cases than, than peak and roughly 40 days into the epidemic um, it would start to, uh, to ease and uh, that's that seems to be consistent uh, for for both for both China and South Korea in fact right now in China um, they're getting, I don't know, a dozen new cases a day for the, in the whole country. Um, and the bulk of those new cases tend to be imported. They're traveling Europe, coming back, and, and so on. So, so the number of domestic transmissions is, uh, is nearly gone, uh, which is pretty impressive. Especially when you think about that as a, what is it, about a $1.5 billion population, roughly? Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's it's you know some one and a half billion people, and and now um, you know a few cases a day is is no longer a threat. Uh, you know, obviously people are much more cautious than they were before the epidemic, um, and and that keeps you know social distance and so on that keeps um, spread from from getting worse. Uh, but uh, so far, it's good news. That's very helpful. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Love. And, and I guess as some people, I'm sure it's easy to critique here in the U.S., but one thing that is uh, valuable is that they have, U.S., I should say, has focused on social distancing and, and made it a very real thing. And so while I'm sure it's not comfortable for anybody, including ourselves, and it will cause impacts on a number of fronts to a lot of people. Hopefully, uh, it is the right preventative measures to be taking where we would better you know, rather be safe uh, than sorry. Uh, from a fatality aspect, Lev, what can we learn about fatality rates, whether it's in areas within China or in types of people? Yes. Yeah, so. so uh, the, the the issue initially was, um, you know, all of a sudden you start getting, you're seeing a lot of people who are sick and, and, and a few who are dying. And and so because you didn't know how many people were, were out there who, who were sick, it was difficult to establish the mortality rate. Um, and so it looked like, you know, and you, you know, 20% or 10% of people who got, got tested positive died and, and it was that was a scary sort of start to this whole epidemic but what they learned is there, there was just early on there were so many people who were infected that weren't diagnosed that weren't tested the mortality rate as, as they started getting the denominator correctly started declining and uh, the numbers they're still uncertain what the numbers are but but you know they vary between um, you know, one to three percent, um, and it's mostly impacting 
uh, the elderly and serve you know compromised immune system or diabetes or, or some other some other sort of disorders that, that make them vulnerable. That's helpful. Thanks. One of the other pieces of information, um, Lev, that we've seen that uh, I certainly got some comfort from is thinking about how different temperatures as flus are more prominent during the colder season and how uh, we hope that this virus will be similarly impacted. What can we learn from the data that we've seen to date as far as the potential impact as the temperatures increase? Yeah, this is a, is a very interesting uh, study that came out last week. Um, the, the, there was a big question uh, when, when the epidemic took off in Wuhan, China. People said, well, you know, now we're seeing Thailand, uh, people getting sick in Thailand because a lot of people from China would go to Thailand for vacation and they brought the, the, uh, the virus there. Uh, and start seeing, uh, you know, cases in Thailand. And people thought, well, Bangkok will become the next Wuhan uh, because it has similar population density and so on. And um, amazingly, uh, only uh, Thailand has, I don't know, 50 cases, 60 cases total. And they couldn't figure out why that is. Uh, now, obviously, Thailand is in, in a much warmer climate zone. So is it possible that this uh, disorder is, uh, is seasonal? And uh, and as we track this, um, you know, where, where you have the, the big, um, you know, uh, a, a lot, you know, fast transmission, community transmission uh, cases, it seems to follow this, this particular, you know, temperature zone. Um, and, you know, obviously there are cases everywhere else, but um, the, the, big, the big epidemics uh, tend to be in zones uh, that are shown in yellow here. And that means uh, if this is really seasonal and has, obviously hasn't been proven, this is just a hint that it could be. If it is really seasonal, that means that as, as we get warmer weather in the, in the U.S., um, it, may, it may ease, that alone may, may uh, ease the uh, spread of, of the virus. That's great. Well, I sit at my home working up in... Uh... Westchester in uh, New York. I uh, I went for a nice run this morning. It was a warm, sunny day. So hopefully, on behalf of uh, us all, Mother Nature will do her part and give us a little bit of warmth here and see if uh, see if that might help. But that's certainly encouraging information to see. Again, a lot of this information is is very real time and is evolving. But this is certainly a positive indicator, uh, especially as it pertains to that stress-tested uh, scenario in Bangkok, so some good early indicators there. Uh, what, what can we learn, if anything, as it pertains to the U.S. so far, Lev? Uh, anything that you think is most helpful from an insight perspective for folks? Yeah, the, the U.S. Is a, is a large country, um, and uh, obviously seeing the more populated areas getting hit first partially because um, you know trans there's more transmission but also the, some of these areas particularly by coastal areas in Florida um, you get uh, a lot more travelers uh, to you know to other countries you know people going skiing and in, in Alps and you know northern Italy and come back with the virus you know it's just more common for folks in, in 
North California to do that, uh, a lot more tourism and so on. And so that's where you had the kind of the original flare-ups in, in the number of cases. Um, but as people sort of stopped doing that, um, you know, I think that, and again, we're looking at potentially, the, the, the numbers I've heard are, you know, early to middle of next month of April, we're going to start seeing the number of new cases peaking. And then, and then perhaps declining. And by, by May, we'll start seeing, you know, substantial declines in new cases. And people will still be getting sick. It's inevitable, but, you know, declines in new cases. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, I think that's kind of the timing here. That's very helpful. And uh, certainly, certainly we, we appreciate everybody uh, doing their part from a social distancing and other, taking other prudent measures. So thank you, everybody. I know uh, certainly all the people we've spoken to are taking this seriously. Again, it's uh, better safe than sorry. So uh, thank, thank you, everyone, for um, what about vaccinations? That's going to be a critical part of this uh, as it pertains to people getting comfortable long term. What are we seeing currently and anything we can learn? Yeah, it's interesting. It, yeah, it's uh, um, this obviously this disorder is getting is getting a lot of funding and, and a lot of interest and uh, the governments around the world are, are putting in the sources behind um, you know, uh, doing doing some rapid fire research on this. There, there are two th two tracks that are that are taking place right now. One is finding a a um, not not a cure, but a but a, a medication similar to what Tamiflu does for for the flu, uh, which is you know a billion, you know, some antiviral that allows you to reduce your symptoms. And and that re, that basically um, somebody gets sick, they're they're uh, you know, not that the risks of them getting sicker get reduced dramatically from something like that. And again, that gives people comfort, and and in particular for for the elderly, it, it, it gives some some comfort there because you can you can halt the symptoms from getting you know from getting to your lungs um, and becoming a a real problem. Something like a Tamiflu version two for this will, will be very helpful. The the uh, projections I've heard are you know, that sometime between you know, late summer and, and fall there will be a product uh, like that um, out there, and that that will reduce the um, uh, the symptoms. That that will be very powerful. So they will turn this disease more into a flu than 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 you know, dangerous uh, disorder that it is now. The other track, obviously, is the vaccine. And there, there's some novel ways that people are approaching it. There are companies, there are multiple companies in the U.S. working on it. There's uh, there's a company in, in Israel. There's a, there's a company in Germany and elsewhere, uh, all working on this thing. Uh, so one way or another, uh, we will have um, a vaccine timing is, is sort of, you know, by the time you actually get it tested and so on and make it available, about a year, maybe a little longer. Uh, and once you get a vaccine, basically this thing's over. Um, so there, there's a, 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 the first trial started, the first vaccine trial uh, started in, in uh, Washington State. 
basically last week or early this week, I think they started. There's there's another one about to start in April, and so we will probably have a dozen running, um, you know, vaccine trials at, at any one time. There's an interesting project now that they're using uh, supercomputers to to basically look at existing substances out there to actually model, you know, which ones will will be the most effective against the virus. And so the technology that exists now uh, to address this crisis is far more advanced than what we had during the SARS epidemic, for example, you know, when we had the you know, uh, H1N1 swine flu uh, 10 years ago. So it's, we've made a lot of progress in this. That's great. So it's helpful to hear that some uh, advancements in technology should also help us uh, find a cure and that this is also being tackled globally by uh, many countries around the world. So hopefully as uh, humanity all rallies together and takes advantage of uh, modern technology, this is something that we'll be able to tackle uh, a lot faster and a lot more efficiently than historically. And it sounds like a reasonable chance that uh, for the next cold season um, where there's a reasonable likelihood that something uh, will be in place, hopefully to potentially reduce, such as a Tamiflu, uh, and maybe even uh, effective uh, vaccination or two. Um, let's talk about the economy a little bit more, Lev, and, and why don't we phase in from what we can see in China's economy, which has obviously a high correlation to what we were just talking about in watching the trends of the flu and watching when are people willing to get back traveling, get back on airplanes, be able to get back to work. So that matters as far as we think about the trends of this as we might be uh, observing it in the US, which of course won't exactly be the same, but this is a good data point to observe. And then also that'll flow into uh, forecasts uh, from a GP growth perspective First off, what can we learn about following the patterns and the behaviors within China and people getting back to work and so forth? Sure. Um, it was interesting. Uh, yeah, it was only China can do what it did, which is take you know, Wuhan, uh, you know, 11 million people, and force them into a quarantine. Um, and then sometime later tell them, now it's time to all get, get out and go back to work. Uh, it's not that easy to do in, in Western countries. But, uh, you know, the point is that w what they did uh, worked. And, um, you know, it, it, will t it will take some time for, for the country to get back to, to normal. But what we're seeing is, if you look at the chart on the left here, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're starting to get more property transactions, you know, people buying homes. You're starting to see, uh, you know, power companies, um, Providing more electricity, which is which is where you see you know coal and, and other other types of fuel usage, um, you start to see a little more traffic congestion. Although those uh, highways are still pretty pretty light uh, in terms of traffic uh, in major cities, uh, but people are returning to work. It was interesting yesterday. We saw, for example, um, iron ore prices and uh, and steel raybar prices uh, rise, uh, which shows that all of a sudden China is starting to, you know, demand product again. 
so you know you can see the recoveries basically you start you had the big the big uh, drop off um, around the um, the holidays in China in kind of late January and then uh, now as we're into March you're you're uh, you're recovering you're maybe um, halfway through the recovery uh, maybe better in some situations there are people flying especially on domestic flights less so on international flights. Um, and so if you look at the chart on the right, what you see is, is kind of the, you know, one of the projections for um, growth. And, and obviously this quarter is going to be an, a negative a contraction quarter for China. But economists project that in the second quarter there will be a rebound. And in the third quarter will be even a faster rebound. And, uh, you know, growth, you know, within a year or two, uh, growth will return to to its uh, normal path that, that was originally predicted before before the virus came. So, so you can see that kind of drop. That's really helpful, Lev. And, and the other thing I observe here, which we'll hopefully see in the U.S. as well, and uh, your point's well taken, that what China was able to do in halting and getting people back going will not be the same pattern as the U.S., though it is great to see, uh, I believe, it it's at least great to see uh, hindsight's always 2020, but seeing the measures that the U.S. has taken to shut down schools, restaurants, large gatherings, and how sports teams and uh, folks of that nature have stood behind this as well and have mobilized quite quickly. So that um, I think that's um, probably a, a real first time for the U.S. to do something in that capacity. And if you look at the gray bars here on the right chart, you see after the drop uh, in Q2, it looks like pent-up demand, hopefully surging a little bit in a Q3, Q4 type of, uh, type of a perspective. And hopefully we'll see something like that in the U.S. as well. It'll be interesting to observe and we'll keep people posted as far as how things play out in China. Um, Let's shift gears now and bring ourselves uh, more micro from China into the U.S. Um, Lev, what are current forecasts and views on what we might see from a U.S. economic GDP growth perspective over the next few quarters? Sure. A lot of economists are, are, are saying that the U.S. is, is in a recession currently. Um, and uh, you know, there's debate where the current quarter will come out positive or negative. Uh, this particular forecast from Goldman says that you know, the current quarter you know, will be will be a contraction um, because we're in a bit of a delay from from China. Um, you know, the second quarter is where we'll have the biggest impact to to the GDP growth, uh, and will be a, a pretty pretty um, Rough decline in in, uh, in in growth across the board, and see sort of areas from from manufacturing to consumption, uh, you know, driving this decline. Obviously, consumers are nervous and staying home, and, and so you'll get this um, this effect. Uh, but once um, once that that's over and the number of cases starts declining. We get into sort of summer months, we should start seeing a rebound, and uh, and 
that rebound it could actually come sooner depending on, on the trajectory of, of the number of new cases. And once, once we recover, uh, we will be back to the regular uh, path that, that people expected we're going to be on. Um, you know, previously, maybe a little slower growth just because it will take some time for people to get back into the routine and so on. But I think by next year, um, you know, we'll expect sort of the, the normal growth that, that we've seen uh, earlier. We're not going to have a, a tremendous growth in the U.S. simply because our, our labor markets are not growing very quickly. We've had some trade trade tensions that, that will persist. Uh, but, you know, we'll get, return back to normal. Uh, this, this economy is very resilient. That's helpful. So the current uh, kind of best forecasts, which are never perfect and will always be evolving, uh, is for a, a pretty hard V-shaped recession, which will impact a broad range of companies as long as they can push through and survive for the next few months and few is uh, a big question as to what a few uh, will end up meaning, but then things should come back to hopefully, again, a, a slow growth type of an economic uh, forecast. So hopefully that'll be a reasonable indicator of what we see. What about a difference as we think about the last recession and we look to this recession? Let's talk about the banks and the role they played and talk about the health of the banks, where they were at in the last recession, and where they're at now, as we see the banks are in a much healthier position. Talk to us a little bit about that, Lev, from a few data points, and then also how you think that can benefit this recession and potential recovery. Sure. So the, the banking system um, is, uh, is dramatically stronger than it was in 2007. Um, there are multiple reasons for that, but the biggest reason is you know, the Fed instituted um, and the OCC uh, instituted a, a number of policies after, after the financial crisis to strengthen the, the financial system in the United States. Um, there, and these, these programs included anything from lowering dependence on short-term financing to boosting capital, capital ratios. Um, and uh, you know, I think the key one, the key effort from the Fed that is, I think has been very effective is the stress test. So every year the Fed takes, takes the, you know, the banking system and says, okay guys, uh, here's a new set of scenarios. We want you to apply those scenarios to your, your loan books, your portfolios, um, and, and those could be include default scenarios, um, rising unemployment and so on. And um, I want to see how well you do under, under those shocks. And depending on the outcome of those shocks, we, we, we will allow you to uh, pay dividends. Um, if you fail uh, those tests, you cannot pay out dividends. You have to, you have to boost your capital. And that approach um, basically forced some banks, and some did it voluntarily, you know, folks like you know, J.P. Morgan, uh, basically boosted their their capital base uh, on their own, and and so you have a, a healthy uh, financial system going into the crisis, uh, and the the types of stress tests that the Fed had banks run resemble 
exactly what's happening now, right? Which, and we know that, you know, they, will, they, they should do reasonably well. That's not to say that we won't have some small banks that are concentrated, you know, have a, a bank that, that may be, uh, you know, lending to the oil industry in, in a particular community. Um, they may be, they may have some troubles because you, you, you oil, oil prices today drop to lowest level in 18 years. And, and so some sectors uh, will, will have trouble, uh, like the energy sector, and banks lending into that sector uh, may, may, you know, have concentrations, may run into some trouble. But those are, tend to be regional, more community banks. The big, the big banks, were, that's where the big concerns are, are, um, are in much better health and, and are very diversified. That's great. Well, that's helpful. And then I guess the ultimately the benefit there is with, if banks are in a lot better shape with better liquidity and available to availability to invest, that they should be able to continue to hopefully provide capital for purchasing real estate for other type of business. And, and banks, of course, have changed a lot in what they do over the last 10, 12 years and their role in the lending environment, which has partially been filled by different alternative lenders, but it's very positive nonetheless that the banks should be in a position to be much more helpful to, in effect, stimulate and keep uh, economic activity growing. Is that a fair assumption, Lev? Yeah. I mean, think about the situation that occurred in 2008. People with payroll, right? Let's say you're a small business, you got some payroll. You got, let's say you got a million dollars in payroll and you know you kept it at some bank. All of a sudden, you don't know if that bank is gonna go under, you're gonna lose your payroll, you won't be able to pay people, right? And so th that, those are the types of concerns people had and they needed the government to step in and protect that, right? I, those concerns really don't exist anymore at this point and so, there's just a lot more confidence that you can deposit money with your bank and, and not worry about uh, you know severe severe problems, uh, and uh, and obviously credit. I think you know obviously banks will will pull back and be a lot more cautious, but but they will provide you know credit card financing. They'll provide mortgage financing. They'll provide some small business financing. Credit lines in particular for for businesses are really important because everybody's tapping their credit lines right now. Uh, to to get through this uh, this period. That's great. So that increased liquidity should be very helpful. It's a good good data point. I thought worth us mentioning. Uh, another data point as it pertains to banks, as as is referred to, the big U.S. banks, which are the uh, six largest uh, banks in the country. Uh, what do we observe there um, as we as we've seen their kind of current status? Yeah. So these are the banks, uh, in addition to some other institutions that the Fed classified as systemically important institutions. And so they had, uh, there, 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 was, there were extra requirements put on these banks to, to make sure that they're, they're solvent, the liquidity ratios and, and so on. And, uh, and so if you look, if you compare these banks to, um, uh, you know, the way they were in seven, it's, it's, it's a completely different situation. So relative to where the Fed needs these banks to be capitalized, they're, they're all significantly overcapitalized. And, uh, and yes, these capital, these capital ratios will decline through this period. 
but uh, that, that's why they, that's what they're there for. And, and so, um, you know, if you just look at the largest banks, they're they're in good shape relative to where the Fed wants them to be. That's great. So they can afford to absorb some shock, whereas yeah, they'll, they'll in the last recession, they they really didn't have much uh, right. much right. of a shock absorber uh, left in them. Yeah, there, there will be there will be some long loss losses. There will be some. Um, loss of new business, you know, there would be loss of revenue because, you know, fewer people may decide to you know, borrow. Um, but, but nevertheless, they, you know, they, they should do okay. One, one interesting development that, that just happened in the last few days, and that is uh, as the Fed lowered rates dramatically to zero, right, the, the yield curve has steepened. And, and that's, a, that's good news for banks because they can basically borrow money. Banks can borrow money for free, right? And with a steep yield curve, they can lend money two years out, or, or even, or even, you know, uh, one year out, uh, at a higher at a higher rate, right? And so all of a sudden, that boosts their their uh, margin, that net margin, uh, interest margin, which uh, which is a really a positive development. The steeper yield curve is is very helpful. Because the yield curve it allows the bank to have a lot make make their loans in a lot more profitable manner that's between right. where they borrow and where they lend at. Yeah, that's a great uh, great observation. As we look now, let, let's now do a little bit of comparison globally. As we know, the world is more globalized, but as we think about the U.S. on a relative basis to other countries, a as we compare the U.S. to other countries, and then b as we think about the U.S in this current recession compared to the last recession, 2008, what can we learn about the U.S. consumers? It appears that they're in a much better shape, which should bode well for the U.S. Uh, economic recovery. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and that's, a, that's another development that, that's unique to this last recovery. That is the, the household leverage, which is you know, debt to disposable income, uh, has been has declined substantially uh, in you know over the decade, and uh, the multiple reasons for it you know incomes obviously have gone up, but the consumer has been um, unlike in previous sort of uh, growth periods. This decade, the consumer has been relatively uh, conservative, and and I know people you know how, how can they be look at all the credit card debt that's growing. Well, yes, there's more credit card debt, there's more auto loan uh, debt, there's more student debt out there, but people are also making more money, and there's the population has grown, and so on a on a ratio basis, uh, the leverage, which is you know if you think of household debt to disposable income, is substantially lower in the United States than it was uh, you know a decade ago, 2008, uh, which cushion will cushion the the consumer. Um, if you look at it relative to some other countries like Canada, where, where um, you know, real estate borrowing boosted um, consumer debt, uh, consumer leverage quite a bit, Australia and places like that, that didn't really happen in the United States. I mean, people were a little shell shocked after after the financial crisis, and, and people were conservative. You know, home equity loans, for example, are not very popular. People were very careful. How, how they use home equity loans. Um, and, and so the consumer in general is in 
very good shape. Again, that's not to say that we're not going to have an increase in delinquencies. We will, right? People will lose their jobs and there will be liquid on, on debt and so on. And we expect that in every recession, but, but relative to other countries and relative to what we saw in 2007, um, I think the consumer is in much better shape. Also a good, good data point that uh, even with the temptation to borrow with so much lower rates, uh, that, that the U.S. consumer on average, at least on this metric, has stayed more prudent. That's a, a helpful indicator for the U.S. economy. Uh, as, we, as we look at the U.S. now, uh, a recent research uh, piece by uh, David Costin at Goldman Sachs uh, talked about how they believe that companies that have more of their revenues driven from the U.S. should recover faster because the U.S. as consumer, as we talked about, is in a lot better shape and is a bigger country and a lot more independent to grow out of this recession. Uh, another data point as we think about the U.S.'s reliance globally, what do you think about the U.S.'s position on a relative basis to other countries as far as places like Germany that sold a lot of their cars to China, for example, as China's growth slows. How do you think about the U.S.'s ability to recover uh, relative to other countries? It's interesting. The, the, the U.S. Um, is one of the least reliant uh, countries of, on, on foreign demand, right? If foreign demand slows, it obviously impacts us, impacts our manufacturers and exporters. But relative to the overall GDP, uh, it, it's really uh, considerably lower than, than um, our peers, than the other developed economies. Uh, and you mentioned, Brett, you mentioned Germany. Um, again, it's a heavily reliant uh, economy on exports, which was great when, when China was booming Germany was booming as well. But, you, you know, it will be a while before uh, the Chinese will, will buy Mercedes in big numbers again, right? It's just it take a while for them to recover. And so uh, Germany is, is dependent not only on, on issues, you know, covering their own domestic demand, um, but also on other countries uh, big time. So their economies is is dependent on that. Uh, the U.S. is not. So in the U.S., once the consumer returns, um, once domestic uh, business activity returns, even if the rest of the world is still struggling, uh, the U.S. will rebound. And you can see that the chart showing that you know the U.S. you know exports are only 12% of the GDP uh, relative to say you know. Germany is 47, South Korea is 44%. That's a significant difference. It seems like politically there's a demand to have uh, even more manufactured uh, in the U.S., not to get into politics, but certainly that's uh, something that we see a push for. And, and Yeah, and, and, that will, yeah and that will probably happen more now because a lot of, a lot of companies who were relied on outsourcing got burnt two ways, they got burned through the tariffs and they got burned through, through this current crisis through supply chain issues. And so a lot of companies will be rethinking in the next sort of couple of years 
how they do this business and and probably a they will diversify their supply chains and b whatever they can will come back to the u.s one thing for uh, people to think about as they're doing their research and analysis on companies and investment strategies is uh, looking through to see for the businesses they're looking to invest in how much of their revenue might be driven from other countries and how much those countries might generically uh, or generally I should say be slowing down and potentially have a slower recovery uh, is something that's probably helpful for people to uh, keep an eye out for. As, as that transitions um, let's talk a little bit about different risks and mitigants um, in the market in general and let's start with a high-level broad industry view. This is a chart here from Moody's talking about different levels of risk. Uh, what are some of the insights you think, Lev, are most helpful for people to be aware of as they think about different industries that might have the biggest impact from uh, the current virus and have potentially the hardest time recovering uh, as a result of it? Sure. Um, I mean, the stock market can kind of tell us a bit about what those those trends are. The stock market is a forward-looking indicator. And you can see, for example, uh, companies that are struggling in the stock market versus companies that are they're doing relatively well. So, you know, Kimberly Clark is outperforming um, you know, other companies. Why? Because they, they manufacture paper towels and toilet paper and so on. Um, at the same time, you know, airlines and the cruise lines are are struggling. Um, so the, the stock market kind of tells you where the risks are, but you know this particular chart gives you kind of a general overview. And, and some some of these shocks will be short term, and some will be longer term. So you look at the high exposure, uh, things like um, apparel, uh, you know, auto manufacturers, um, consumer durables, uh, will get hit for sure. But you know, people are going to need to buy washing machines, and they're going to need to buy cars, and they need to going to need to buy clothing. So that will, that should come back reasonably quickly. On the other hand, something like gaming may take some take longer before people are are comfortable enough to get on a plane and, and go to Vegas. Um, be some so, good deals in Vegas coming through. I imagine exactly the next few right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's similar to you, when you look at, on the right side, we have lodging and uh, leisure and tourism. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's an industry that's going to be having a little bit of a longer term uh, recovery before people come back. Uh, but look at airlines. Yeah, casual flying is probably going to be slow. Business flying will return pretty soon, as it did in China. Uh, you know, retail, uh, it, it's... People will be buying more from the internet. Some of some of that trend in retail is is uh, is a structural trend. You know, this epidemic will just accelerate what's happening in that trend, which is people, companies, moving more and more of their business online. So you have fewer physical stores and, and more, and this this trend will just continue, maybe at a faster clip. Um, and you'll have like. Things, international issues like global shipping, again, that's that's a business that's dependent on, on the rest of the world and demand globally. So, so you will vary, right? From, depending on the industry, the, the impact and the longevity of the impact will vary on on kind of you know, the 
demand recovery. I think that's a good uh, distinction to make is that there are some things that will have a short-term hit, but then they will likely come back relatively quickly. There are other things that are trends that those trends may escalate. You know, as we've invested in certain industries, telehealth, video conferencing, things of that nature, you know, we're seeing uh, obviously increased trends on that. And so good for people to be mindful of how this might impact the changes in consumer behavior generally, as you mentioned, people buying things online, is that going to continue to systematically increase and who may be the beneficiaries of that and who may be the people that are challenged uh, from that. Uh, so, so thanks Lev for that. As we think about some, some of the other things that will impact in particular short-term risks, they obviously impact long-term risks, but one of the things that uh, I think is really helpful for people to think about are what are the risks of default and Moody's did a 25-year study looking at predictors of default and of course no one piece of information is ever perfect but this is a good uh, data point and the key takeaway here is that leverage is the largest determinant of risk the size of a company matters but ultimately is the smallest determinant of risk the other piece of information that we found very helpful is that if you take the amount of leverage, you take the liquidity a business has, and if you have a lot of debt, you probably have a lot of stress on your liquidity. And then if you go over to the fourth column to the debt coverage ratio, the more debt you have, the less debt coverage you have. So you have 60% roughly of the variables. They're all highly correlated to how much leverage you have on your business. And as we think back to some of these shorter term risks, there are some businesses that have prudent balance sheets, that have a good amount of liquidity, that have a good amount of extra cash, and they can weather these storms. There are other businesses where this may be a very difficult time for them. In fact, it, it will be a difficult time for them, and some businesses may go all the way through into bankruptcy uh, you know, from this because it's going to be a shock uh, measured in at least probably a couple of months, potentially longer, that businesses will have to need to survive and operate and manage through potentially without being able to access much other capital. Although, as Lev pointed out, it is helpful the shape that the U.S. banks are in in particular. Um, that's not uh, an exact uh, replica of what's going on uh, in banks in Europe and other markets, um, just for sake of clarity, which we won't get into today, but there are pretty meaningful differences in banking systems. Another interesting fact from this current market environment is valuations. So the average purchase price multiple that private equity firms and other folks have paid for companies in 2019 was at a slight all-time high at 12.9 times to the far left uh, bar on average. And if we also look at the dark blue, which is the amount of leverage that the company had to uh, use to make the acquisition at the time on 2008, we can see that that was the approximately the highest. Uh, technically, the date in 2014 shows that it jumped up to 7.2 times. But if we compare 2008 to 2019, we can see that the valuations at the private equity side are a little bit higher now than they were then. 
Um, leverage seems to have been quite a bit higher in 2008 than 2019. And so that, that gives some people comfort. However, if we drill down deeper and look into, uh, as we've all heard, the devil is often in the detail, as we think about a key variable here is how do you define EBITDA? stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. But there's often a lot of variability in how a lender or private equity firm will calculate what are things that are a one-time cost that are not included in that EBITDA um, that ultimately gives a higher EBITDA. For example, businesses might say, I'm opening a new store. Uh, please don't assume that my expenses are higher right now. Assume that this store is open, functioning, running, and generating real cash flows and incorporate that into my run rate forward-looking EBITDA. So some valuations and some leverage multiples may have large things that ultimately mean that it's assuming the EBITDA is much higher than it actually is. Some of those adjustments may be legitimate and warranted. Some of them may have a lower probability of occurring, particularly now as we've hit a challenge in the market. So if you were assuming you were opening new gyms or new restaurants, that is likely on pause for quite a while while your expenses may still be running and your revenues low, which can of course cause some major challenges and concerns that is one of the things that uh, does give us some concern uh, within the economy where there's a lot of additional detail that's not within base value shown information. To the far left, uh, this is information from uh, Lincoln International as a large valuation firm and they looked at the uh, average EBIT adjustments in 2013 and compared them to 2019 and the reason for those years was just really when they started collecting much more granular data and one of the reasons that led them to do that is they viewed that EBITDA adjustments were systematically increasing. That means in simple terms that the valuations and leverage are really leverage is higher than it might seem. Valuations were higher than they might have seemed on a historical uh, EBITDA perspective and valuation. 2019 on average, uh, Lincoln came up with 24.7%, so approximately 25% was the average adjustment to actual EBITDA. So if we look to the right and we assume, which probably wasn't exactly true, but let's assume that in 2008 that it was an actual EBITDA leverage multiple on average of seven times. We look today and we say, well, it's only 5.9, so it's not as bad. But with a 25% adjustment to EBITDA, that adds another effectively 1.9 times worth of leverage, which as you can see in the top right of that column, means that your actual EBITDA leverage ratio maybe 7.8 times today. So that would in fact be an all-time high leverage ratio A, but more relevantly, it's a big factor. It's not a small number that we'll see how that plays through this current economic uh, downturn. Another change in the credit markets to be wary of, and we've all seen this and heard of it, so it's nothing new, 
but we did want to re-highlight this is that covenant light loans, meaning that loans made that have very friendly terms for the borrowers are at all-time highs. And based on this data from Standard Poor's, uh, as of the end of 2018, they found that approximately 80% of all the loans issued were covenant light. That means that the lenders have a lot less protection to impact what a business does if there are challenges. So if a business is starting to not perform, and historically it would breach a covenant, so it would be out of compliance, then the lender would have the ability to step in and help direct what was going to happen and help have a seat at the table to help protect their debt capital. In the current state of affairs, a lot of those protections that were afforded to lenders have materially gone away. So that is going to be an interesting observation to see how that impacts the uh, global lending market as a change. Another thing some of uh, some folks have asked us to talk about today is, is a bit of a thoughtfulness through different aspects of risk to consider, which there are of course many, um, and this is only a few of them. As we think from a top-down perspective, if people are investing in fixed income lending products, the first thing is looking, does that fund itself have much leverage. So the CLO market, collateralized loan obligations, are typically a product that has a lot of leverage at the fund level. The second is company level leverage, which we just talked about. Then there are the EBITDA adjustments, which require the capability to get information, analyze it, interpret it, to determine what the real leverage levels might actually be. Then there are the loan covenants to help protect the lenders um, should there be challenged market environments, as we're seeing today. The next is loan ownership. Loan ownership means how many people actually control the voting of the loan. So if there is a challenge that a company has and the lenders need to say, well, how do we deal with this challenge? Do we extend them more money? Do we reduce their interest rate? Do we give them um, you know, some holidays on interest to uh, make up for it later? What do we do about it? Do we call the loan and do we tell them they need to repay it? There are a lot of different things that borrowers or that lenders need to consider. If you have a large group of people that have diverging interests and are harder to get together to make decisions, that complexity can also have challenges and can create additional risks. Then you get into, if there are those risks, what is the ability of an investment manager, what is their capability to manage challenges and work through those challenges as people call workouts? And then lastly, what are the various sources of repayment? Depends on what type of a business you're lending to. Do they still have good cash flows? Do they have assets you might be able to liquidate? Is this a short-term challenge you can work through? Or is this going to be something long and systematic that ultimately you're going to need to look to get uh, repaid in, in different ways, including potentially selling the business. Uh, so those are some of the risk factors uh, that we think about as a business and that we think are helpful to share. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your time. Uh, Lev, thanks for your time going through this. Uh, we will continue to keep people updated with uh, different 
information that we see around the virus and continue to communicate uh, with you all. We hope that uh, this virus does get tackled uh, in a swift and prompt manner, and we wish you all uh, health and safety.